Take a network break. Grab a virtual donut and join us for our weekly romp through this week's tech news. We'll talk about a boom in data center switch sales, VMware financial results, Germany at cross purposes with its Huawei policy, space networking, and more. Stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes podcast where we talk with network automation with sponsored Backbox. From backing up network devices to updating OSs and configurations and other tasks, Backbox works across more than 180 vendors. We'll talk about uh, how Backbox works and hear customer use cases. Uh, by the way, if you want more news and blogs, sign up for a human infrastructure newsletter. It goes out every Thursday. It's got tech blogs, tech resources, essays, memes, and more. You can sign up for free at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And also see all the back issues at that site, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. All right, we'll jump right into the news. Uh, data center switch sales grew by 15% in the fourth quarter of 2022. This is according to research from the Delora Group. It's the fifth consecutive quarter of growth for data center switches. Yeah, but not in the enterprise. 80% of that growth was actually in... Cloud companies, as you might expect. The cloud. The cloud, yes. yeah. So uh, Delora went on to state that full year shipments of 200 and 400 gigabits per second reached almost 10 million ports. Can you imagine that? 10 million ports of 200 gig and 400 gig, accounting yep. to almost 10% of total shipments and 20% of revenues. And this growth was largely driven by the ongoing adoption of those speeds by the large cloud as service providers. And uh, they also noted here that a lot of this growth is actually driven by the uh, sales backlog. You remember we mm -hmm. had sales supply uh, supply chain issues last year. All of the companies are still sitting on multi-billion dollars worth of back orders and seemingly very slow to work through them, I think. And, uh, you know, it is probably useful to the vendors to maintain that backlog in a, in a sort of way. In one sense, they want to ship it all out and get that money in. But in another right. way, it lets them keep inflated prices. If, you know, like if things are in short supply, you know, that, you know, if you make something scarce, people will pay more for it and they don't, you know, you can crush a decision in and say, if you don't get the order in now, you won't be in the queue, you know, all that sort of stuff, that sort of sales 101 stuff. So, sure, sure. So, <laughs> Although that, that, that could backfire if there's a competitor who's like ready to just empty out the warehouse and doesn't care. So yeah, well, it's, I could see your point, but yes, yeah. it's, it comes with risk. At this point, everybody's using the same chips from Broadcom and Broadcom can decide how quick and how slow. You know, there's only so much capacity at TSMC and a lot of these chips use reasonably modern um, forging processes or, um, you know, manufacturing processes. So um, the other point that they made was that Arista is the primary beneficiary of the revenue growth, capturing the majority of the increase, followed by Juniper and Whitebox. Arista's revenue share grow, rose by almost 7%, 7 points during the quarter, and the company's market share surpassed 20% for the full year. Yeah, that lines up with uh, Arista's financial results, which we covered in a couple episodes back. The company had reported almost 50% growth in revenue for year-end 2022, and as they acknowledged, a lot of that growth came from one or two mm. cloud providers. Yeah. Now, the obvious thing here is that Cisco is, of course, the dominant player in the networking industry, and it's not growing. Remember, this is volume of sales, and this report is specifically saying everybody else grew but Cisco, or they're not. Cisco's growth wasn't enough to come on to the the pricey, because we don't have the whole report, we only have the pricey. Now, I imagine Cisco is still dominant, but keep in mind that Cisco's revenue numbers are still large and significant. So the general logic from this is that Cisco is charging more for a smaller number of ports, and that's how it's going forward. So it's choosing to charge more for the same product than it was before, and it's happy to accept that its volume of product is shrinking, but it's going to charge more for it one way or the other. Otherwise, it wouldn't be possible to have Cisco's numbers. Right. And again, because most of the growth in this report was focused on cloud, I don't know that Cisco is 
had the same impact in the cloud as mm. an Arista and the white box vendors. So that may be why they didn't uh, make, uh, weren't, didn't rate a mention yeah. uh, in this well, in this report. I have seen a number of articles over the last six months where I don't generally bring them to the front because they're more sort of, they're not strongly sourced or they're not newsy enough to make it interesting. But Cisco does have a web scale team selling the Silicon One product into the enterprise. And they are also trying to sell some of Cisco switches into there as well. And there are versions of Cisco switches which can run Sonic uh, on a deal-by-deal basis. So Cisco has to agree mm-hmm. to supply them and so forth. And Cisco will provide the necessary developer support so that you can run Sonic on Cisco switches. Um, but it doesn't seem to be a lot of volume yet. I don't think Cisco's really been able to displace Arista and Juniper from that space. And, of course, right. you know, Companies like AWS just make their own more often than not. So, you know, use genuine white box. Microsoft is one of the companies that still likes to buy its products from branded partners. Um, and so, you know, I, I think Cisco is making inroads into companies in sort of niche and the companies are using them to sort of, I would guess that if I was, you know, a major player, I would have multiple suppliers and playing them off against each other. Mm-hmm. And the ones I didn't particularly like or weren't, you know, we're not in favor. I have them sitting in some corner of my infrastructure that where they're still there helping to keep the others honest, but not maybe not given full attention. Right. I could see that as well. Yeah. And maybe one day they'll come out with a product which is actually worth having, you know, and they, you always want that supplier to be in touch and feel like they've got a chance. So they keep making products that might do better. So we'll see. All right, moving on, uh, Infinera, Corning, and Aurelian are touting new point-to-point transmission records for 400 gig. Infinera, they make uh, coherent pluggable optics, says it transmitted a 400 gig wavelength over 2,400 kilometers on a test network using QSFPDD coherent pluggables. That is twice the distance of a previous record. Every time I talk about optical, I have the same problem. It's just like all these words that I feel like I have to practice. <laughs> coherent pluggables across 2,400 kilometers of caught optical fiber. This is um, really the the underlying issue here is that the OFC conference happened last week, which is an optical conference where they all talk about arcane optical things about how light travels over fibre. And there was quite a lot of serious announcements, but this was really the only one that I could pick out that seemed to be relevant to the audience. And I I, I sort of felt that there was a secondary issue here. Uh, In this case, Infinera and Corning have partnered with Aurelian. They were using Aurelian's fibre in the field. Um, to deliver 400 gig single wavelength transmission across their coherent backbone for 2,400 kilometers. Now, a few years ago, to get to 2,400 kilometers, you would have had to have multiple repeaters in that line, six, Mm -hmm. 12, you know, 24, if you had a 100 kilometer run. Whereas if you can now just make this one run, then the way you plan your fiber runs changes. If you can have 2,400 kilometers and just you can just go along and trench 2400 kilometers of fiber you don't have to pop up into cabinets and then put power into them and repeat the signal or you know run it up into a a repeater tray in a in a wave division multiplex box or something like that and that really changes the cost profile of that long haul bandwidth avoiding those signal boosters and those hops means the cable doesn't have to provide power or you don't have to provide power locally so the cable costs less weighs less and it's a whole lot easier to install Um, the benefits here just you know, they go up a J, a J curve. The, the further the further you can drive it, the better you are. Yeah. And Infinera came up with a new chipset around this. They've partnered with Corning to come up on the fiber and to work with it to tune it correctly because these things are all very custom, you know, their ability to sense the bandwidth and look at the optical performance of the fiber at different parts of the spectrum and then say, we're going to shoot this signal down this piece of the spectrum. So 2,400 kilometers on a single wavelength and it was actually combined with other wavelengths in the network. So... 
this wasn't the only thing on the fiber. It was actually so quite an amazing thing. Well, I will say they also did another test with Aurelian uh, where they did a 400 gig transmission. Uh, this was on a production network and it went, they got uh, 1800 kilometers. So it was, I think the mm -hmm. 2400 kilometers was on a test network, sort of with a yeah. clean, you know, okay. pristine uh, condition as, as opposed, still though, 1800 kilometers on a live network is, is still, I think, again, you're just talking about significant benefit. Yeah. You can bypass a whole lot of your intermediate steps, even on an existing infrastructure, even if you have, you know, repeater trays all the way along, you can skip them, you know, just right. pass the cable through, <laughs> skip the trays. And that's a whole lot of cost avoided, you know. Yep. Uh, but it's just a story of how we get to better and better bandwidths at cheaper and cheaper prices. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it yourself. Uh, our next piece is about, uh, again, the geopolitical and uh, IT intersection. Uh, so the German government's reportedly considering removing Huawei and ZTE equipment from its mobile telecom networks. But at the same time, the German agency that operates the country's rail system is planning to purchase Huawei switches and routers as part of it, the digitization of its national rail infrastructure. Uh, the register is citing local reporting in Germany saying, quote, the German federal government plans to forbid mobile operators from installing key components from Huawei and ZTE into their 5G networks and also reports that existing Huawei and ZTE gear might need to be removed and replaced from those telecom networks. Well, at the same time, the rail ministry is going to be buying Huawei switches and routers. So what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> the German government under Merkel, which was the previous uh, leadership before she retired, had been a strong proponent of engaging with Russia and China. So Germany had been sending a lot of its manufacturing equipment you know, producing manufacturing equipment and then shipping it to China so China could manufacture goods. And then it was doing deals with Russia to take their energy, their oil, their gas, and a lot of their raw materials. Now, the EU and the NATO allies had been telling Germany that this was generally a bad thing to be overly dependent. It was going to come unstuck. And sure enough, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, they were told they couldn't buy any more oil and gas, and which has seriously affected the German economy. And nobody's really very uh, upset about that because Germany kind of earned it. Everybody told them that they shouldn't, but they went ahead and did it anyway. Um, and they were also warned about over-dependency over on China for the same reason. And now, of course, the relationship between US and China is very stressed. Um, where there's a lot of stuff going on where they're actually saying that at this moment, in the next 10 to 20 years, there's a significant chance there will be some sort of conflict with China somewhere. So... Germany is now having to realize that the situation has changed. They can now have to sort of wind back their partnership with China. They've already been forced to stop buying oil and gas from Russia as part of that. And part of that, of course, is that for countries who are no longer engaging with China, that means no Huawei, no ZTE, no Chinese technology equipment right. in the WAN network. So this means Germany comes into line with NATO and they can't turn around and say like, oh, but we're different or A, we've been, we believe that engagement is the best way to peace. And what you've also got to remember is that Germany made an awful lot of money out of selling to Russia and China when other people wouldn't, and now they're sort of paying the price a bit later. So it's hard to feel bad for them in that sense, if you look at it, but it's also a signal that this is going to be a long going issue. We're talking now about all of the major IT vendors are moving all their manufacturing out of China at a steady pace, steady pace, not racing out of there, but you'll see more and more of this where the manufacturing moves to Japan or, you know, chip manufacturer will move to Korea or Taiwan or, you know, wherever. And uh, assembly will happen in other countries and more and more of it will be onshored in Europe and in the US as so that the supply chains get rebuilt back to where they were before before the, the, the attempt at globalization. Right. I think the issue I wanted to raise was I feel like it's probably difficult for German companies, particularly sort of nationalized companies to figure out, well, what's the policy here? If it's a security risk and being kicked out of our telecom network, 
uh, because it's critical infrastructure, does the rail system count as critical infrastructure in this $63 million euro deal we that made? Sounds that, like a, <laughs> that sounds like inertia. <laughs> We're too far in now. We can't stop now. We've spent years getting this far. How are we can't. Yes, right. Yes. Yes. Know, big, big government departments or big you know, railways, they'd be at the point of saying like, no, we, we desperately need it. We can't stop now sort of thing. Right. Reuters is reporting that the German rail operator says it's not obligated to get approval for its technology purchases from the German cybersecurity ministry. So it also mm. sounds like there's some intergovernmental uh, clashes happening here. It's just, I, I feel yeah. sympathy for German companies who are trying to figure out what, what is the policy here when it sounds like it's two different things uh, for two different yeah. Uh, sectors. Yeah. But this is what got Germany into the situation it's in now is by saying, we just, we just want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we just want the money. We don't care. Right. You know? We're just going to do what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. And of course that hasn't worked out so well. So I do feel, you know, really, you know, it's time to make some hard decisions. I, I think they do have to make a decision one way or the other, just, you know, for clarity's sake. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the UK had to, you know, right. and they had to spend a few billion dollars paying off the telcos to replace it. And then eventually Same in the US, yes. uh-huh. uh, outlaw it in the private sector as well and so on and so forth. So, yeah. All right, uh, moving on. Qualcomm and Thales have announced the certification of an integrated SIM or iSIM on Qualcomm's Snapdragon processor for mobile devices. The idea is that by integrating SIM directly onto the processor, device manufacturers can provide built-in connectivity for mobile devices in a smaller form factor. So think smartphones, tablets, wearables, that kind of thing, where you might want connectivity in a very small device. So before we start discussing that, I just have a question for people out there. Is it Thales or Thales? <laughs> I've heard different people say Thales and Thales or Thales, and or there's some pronunciation, and I've never been entirely sure. I imagine that as a you know generic English speaker, it reads like Thales, but I've got an idea that in European it might be Thales or something like that. Anyway, if you know, send send us an email or get in contact via packetbushes.net slash fu. Yeah, or um, send us yeah. a wave file so we can play it because, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to be the ugly American, but if, if I see yeah. it spelled, I'm just going to say it like, I, <laughs> like yeah. I'm an American. So Well, Thales is a French company, so largely is nominally a French so it's, company. So. There, you probably don't even pronounce the ES. It's probably just like Thal or something. Yeah, Thalay. Thalay. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be interesting to know, though, for sure, and to, to be able to get it right in the future. Is it a, is it so, a tech company or a fragrance? Thalay. It's a security company that if the tech is a part of it, it's the, it's one of those <laughs> companies. Now. Uh, so SIM cards, obviously everybody knows, and that was sort of a, a, really an aberration. No one really knew why we chose SIM cards back in the day, except because the phone manufacturers and the telcos rarely cooperated with each other. eSIM was a replacement for the SIM card with a chip on board and a remotely provisional capability so that a telco could program the SIM with the necessary details so the phone knew how to connect to the network and to connect to the billing system. And iSIM is basically Qualcomm saying, why is this a separate chip? Why don't we just put it into our SOC? So in effect, we're seeing the Snapdragon Gen 2 SOC, which is a a whole chipset around uh, going into mobile phones, very popular in the Android chipsets, of course. And it enables the functionality of a SIM within the smartphone's main processor. Every smartphone needs a SIM card these days, Drew. So that makes sense, right? <laughs> it's not a smartphone without one. <laughs> not a, and every so it's kind of weird to think that this is even a thing, but uh, they're making a big deal about it. And um, I think the area where I'm most interested in this is with SD WAN and five gig, uh, sorry, and five G fixed wireless access appliances. So as we see SD WAN, we're seeing a lot of people have five G built into those SD WAN edge routers, and the idea of slotting a, sl- a SIM in there. 
is a bit weird when you've already got a provisioning system in the cloud. Why can't you just say, oh, I want this one to be connected to this brand of network. Oh, I don't want to deal do business with them anymore. I want to change it. You should be able to remotely provision those about which 5G provider you wanted to use. And that's what I would like to see. I think this feature should be adopted by SD-WAN and those people using five gig, you know, direct wireless, wireless backbones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they should be able to churn between mobile carriers to get the best price. That would be a win for customers and who cares what the carriers think. I'd never care what the carriers think, so I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I care, but not not, not in that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, we'll move on. VMware has reported its fourth quarter and fiscal year 2023 financial results. For the quarter, VMware had revenues of $3.7 billion, up 5% over last year. For the full year, VMware had revenues of just over $13 billion, up 4% over last year. Net income was $1.3 billion for the year, down over last year's results. Yeah, I keep looking at VMware because of its takeover deal by Broadcom, of course, and it's becoming clear that VMware is having problems with slow growth. So this was expected to have have more growth than this, but VMware has to hold itself at a standstill. When it goes agrees to a takeover offer, it has to hold itself at or about the value that the takeover was agreed mm. and to make no major changes. And uh, so they have to, you know, if you wanted to do something innovative or to uh, make a major acquisition to try and reboost and, and get some growth or something like that, they can't because they have to wait for the deal to go through. And of course, uh, the uh, takeover application process that Broadcom is having is now being challenged by at least the UK, the EU, and the US governments. Mm-hmm. And if any one of those reject the deal, then the deal will probably sink. And it is increasingly difficult to imagine that Broadcom's going to get through this process. Um, because the mistake that Broadcom made was to go out and say, we're going to increase the profitability of VMware from $3 billion to $12 billion within three years. And everybody just looked at that and went like, there's only one way to do that. You can introduce new products <laughs> if you like, but you're not going to get to $12 billion profitability, you know, on a company turning over, you know, $50 billion a year unless you're going to increase prices. And mm-hmm. I think you're going to see at least one of those, com- you know, competitive authorities start to put spokes in the wheel of what Broadcom can do. And if they do, it might just get to the point where it dies. So um, now Broadcom, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago, Broadcom announced that, Sure, we're not going to increase prices. We're going to find new ways to extract revenue. And that's like, and I don't believe too many people took that seriously because that's not how Broadcom works. Right. Um, so we'll see. But VMware did okay, came in at like safely 5% up, 4% up. Uh, income was good. Uh, revenue was good. Shares have basically held steady. I think they've sort of bobbled up and down minus five, plus five as people sort of shifted around and don't really under, you know, People are selling to get out because it's not going to go anywhere between now and the acquisition. They'd be better off putting their money somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think VMware, Broadcom is a good home for VMware because of how Broadcom treats the software companies and what it would mean for VMware in terms of you know trying to innovate and create new markets and so on. So if it doesn't happen, that's fine with me. I think VMware is probably better off as a standalone organization in terms of what it could do in the market uh, creatively. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Okay, moving on. Some employees of Google's cloud division have complained about a desk sharing policy being implemented at five offices, including in pricey real estate locations such as New York and San Francisco. Google's reducing office space to reflect a hybrid work environment where people are only coming into an office a few days a week uh, and they don't want to have to maintain office space for a workforce that isn't there all the time. This is this is so radical that in 2023, people still think that their desk is a sacrosanct piece of personal space. <laughs> like it's uh, so you know what's happening here is that Google's cloud division, 
not the whole of Google, but one division of it is mm-hmm. saying like something like 60% of our staff are never going to come back into the office. And of the people who come in the office, the desks are only being used about 30% of the time. So if you've got this situation where everybody gets allocated a desk and then people only coming in two, three days a week, you've got a whole, some very expensive real estate allocated to nothing. So they're pushing a, a hot desking policy and the people are coming in and saying, but where's my desk? I don't want a hot desk. I want mine. Right. <laughs> <It's good>. Right. <laughs> and uh, I haven't had a desk in 25 years and I'm kind of like, uh, you, you people are weird. So it's funny, isn't it? I, I just brought that up because it's one of those interesting things that we forget about is that if you've been coming to the same desk five days a week and you think you own that space and you don't, that's not how the future is going to be, I don't think. Well, you know, from the work perspective, I get it. Like, it's nice to have your creature comforts, you know, some photos, your favorite coffee mug, a water bottle, you know, your phone charger, whatever, and to have to like pack all that crap up every time you leave the office and then lug it back in because you're going into the office just to make your desk feel like a nice place. Does I'd be like, ah. and the, the the other thought is like, who else has been sitting in this chair? What have they been doing? Just a little uh, you slightly a icky. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, there's, I know there's ways around it, but it just like makes going into the office now even a little bit more irritating. And so, when you yeah. want to try to get people back into the office, hot desking is going to sound like, oh God, I'm not just never mind. I worked at a company back. for a year where hot desking meant I used to sit in the cafeteria. <laughs> until 11.30 and then I would go walk around and find a desk and I would often move twice during lunch and then go back to the cafeteria after lunch because that was the only place where I could get a desk. So right, and that I sounds terrible. I don't know what you're whining about. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Okay. That's like the, I had to walk three miles in the snow, you yeah. people. Are, and I yeah, can that, tell you that, how much And you know how well that done. argument works. That argument does yeah. not work well. And I would sit there and say, I'm not getting much work done here. Why do I have to come into the office? And I still had to come into the office. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and that yes. was the you know, so I was like, all right. Didn't get a lot of work done, but that's that's what they wanted. So no. And and I can totally see Google looking at the numbers and being, okay, okay, well, we need one third less office space and that means people have to share desks and that seems like a very logical solution. But for the worker, it's like, oh well now coming it's into the like office sucks even more. Idea. I know like it's not desking, you know? No, I know. Well, anyway. <laughs> God bless humans. Yeah, it's all people are complicated. That's, oh, that's what it comes down to. Puppets. Just don't act like, you know. Can't this is why they like can't wait to replace us with AI because AI doesn't care where its desk is. <laughs> you need a scheduling algorithm in the for the fleshy meat puppets. Yes, yes. All right, uh, moving on uh, to some space networking news. A regulatory agency in the United Kingdom has given provisional approval for a U.S. satellite communications provider, Viasat, to acquire Inmarsat. This is a U.K.-based satellite communications provider. Inmarsat is probably best known for providing in-flight Wi-Fi and airplanes. Uh, the regulatory agency cites the increasing competition in the satellite internet market from newcomers, including Starlink and existing competitors such as Intelsat and Panasonic, and says airlines will actually have more options for choosing onboard Wi-Fi providers uh, if this deal goes through. So Inmarsat and Viasat are both what I would consider heritage satellite providers. Heritage uh, is a nice word for it. Yes, uh, with the traditional, you know, one big satellite up in space, <coughs> usually in a geosynchronous orbit and so on and so forth. And um, we've seen Starlink come along and prove out the idea of lots of small satellites is probably a more effective method. Uh, and so these types of companies are probably not seen immediately as the future. And, of course, the UK government has invested in OneWeb, which is also building a small satellite network to compete with Starlink. Right. So I think the UK government will be happy to see Inmarsat have a future and that the people there will continue to have jobs. It makes sense for, you know, to get scale in this in that heritage satellite business and the work that they do. They will still be there, 
those types of satellites still have a purpose. But if you're shifting data around, you're much more likely to use, you know, Starlink or OneWeb. And so it's not a surprise the UK government gave permission for that to happen because they've got OneWeb, which is going to be a UK-based company. So Yeah. So I should note, again, this is a provisional approval. Uh, a final decision is scheduled for the end of March. And then Viasat and Inmarsat, uh, the acquisition also has to be under review by US and European regulators. But I wouldn't be surprised if we get the same yeah. outcome. Give, given the state to of make the, the argument in 2023 that, that you'd be building monopoly out of merging satellite, yeah. kind of heritage satellite companies. Yeah. All right. That wraps up the news portion of the show. We do have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Backbox on network automation. Stick around. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking network automation with sponsor Backbox. Backbox approach to automation is to focus on network engineers and integrate automation with how they already do their jobs. My guest is Josh Stevens. He's Chief Technology and Strategies Officer and GM of Managed Security Partners at Backbox. Uh, Josh, welcome to the podcast. And can you give us kind of the elevator pitch on Backbox, what you're doing? Yes, absolutely. Backbox is a provider of network automation software. We build the Backbox network automation platform, which is used by over 500 customers managing over 100,000 networks around the globe to automate network security and operations at scale. Okay, so there's a lot of options in the network automation space. What do you bring to the table that's kind of different or unique uh, for folks looking for a network automation strategy? You know, a lot of the network automation products out there require deep scripting expertise and, mm -hmm. and require that you do a lot of development on your own in order to use them. We're focused on building products that that are more tailored for the core skill set of network engineers and network administrators. So products that let them focus on network operations and security versus having to dedicate a lot of time toward the automation platform itself. Uh, with many of the solutions in the marketplace, organizations are expected to dedicate two, three, four, five people on a dedicated network automation team. Mm -hmm. And our focus at Badbox is building a product that lets people spend you know, maybe an hour or two a day on it, as opposed to dedicating full-time resources just to doing automation. Yeah, I think there is this tension with network automation, trying to bring it into an organization in that one, folks are already busy doing their day jobs. Two, they don't want to become developers to make a product work or get it off the ground. So what are you doing differently? There's a few things we do differently. Number one, the product is extremely easy to use so that we spend a lot of time and effort making the user experience light and easy, something that you can figure out without having to read a manual. So it's very intuitive. Secondly, when it comes to advanced automations, um, while you can certainly, if you have the skill and the extra time, go build those things for yourself and integrate them with Batbox, we have a dedicated custom automation team here at Batbox that writes those for our customers. And when a customer calls us and says, hey, we're trying to do something kind of advanced, we have this, this workflow we're trying to instrument to do complex upgrades on our Palo Alto firewalls. When we help them develop that, we make it a first level capability of the product. So from that point forward, you can leverage that automation via our GUI and via the API. It's all programmable. So you don't have to even modify scripts to change it around. It's all native uh, in the user interface. Okay, so you're saying any um, updates or changes or features you add for an individual customer eventually get rolled out into the product as a whole? That's exactly right. We typically roll those out for the product as a whole. now. Some automations that customers asked for are very specific to their environment. So we would obviously make that uh, sort of generalize it before we put it in the product for other people to use. Sure. But, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of networks out there being automated by the product. And so one of the things that we think is really important is empowering those network teams 
to get their jobs done really rapidly, securely, and reliably um, without having to go develop that in-house expertise to build those strips. So for us, you know, we, we've sort of become an, uh, a part of our customers' network team. Rather than them having to go hire automation experts, they simply lean on us as a partner. We do that for them. We've made the product so that it's very easy for us to add automations. You don't have to upgrade the product, for example, to download the new automations. You just simply download the automation and plug it in. Uh, and so it makes it very easy for customers to expand their use cases over time and lean more and more on the application. When we're talking about network automation, what what are we talking about specifically with Backbox? Are we looking at OS upgrades, config changes, device provisioning? What are we talking about? All of the above. One of the really common use cases that people come in the door to start with is backups. And network backups probably sound like a very simple thing, but at scale with thousands of devices, um, devices that oftentimes have to have multiple files backed up, not only for the config, but for the OS, mm-hmm. um, reliably programmatically so that if you're if you're injecting a change into the network uh, via a service ticket for example maybe someone opens a ticket in service now that ticket is deeply integrated with a product like backbox to go kick off an automation you want to have that closed loop uh, back to the system and you want to have the ability in any automation to capture backups before you start injecting change right <laughs> you also need the ability to roll back to the previous config and or OS with either a single click or a single API call. Um, And oftentimes a good litmus test for how well architected your backup strategy is, is whether or not you can restore with one click reliably. Uh Um, Because sometimes you need to restore. Sometimes you're going to roll out changes that aren't going to work as expected. You're going to see anomalous behavior and you want to be able to programmatically roll back to come in the next day review what happened and then try again. Uh, So backups are a really common place for people to start. We do that very reliably at scale. We're the best in the business when it comes to automating network backup. The second use case that people typically lean on us for is upgrades. Upgrades can be complex. They can be tiresome. In many organizations today, we recently did a survey and uh, the research showed us that 92% of the organizations we spoke to said that they have uh, more upgrades and more changes required for the network than they're able to keep up with. So they're uh-huh. always running behind. And upgrades are one of those things that, you know, when I was young, 30 years ago, getting my start as a network engineer, and I would say probably until five or 10 years ago, we really tried to constrict change at the network layer as much as possible right. to enforce good hygiene and run security and operations. Um, but today with the number of CVEs that are coming out, the extreme amount of cybersecurity risk that exists out there, you probably need to upgrade those devices not once or twice a year like in the old days, but maybe once or twice a month. And that's pretty much impossible to do without automation. So we do a lot of of automation workflows around those upgrades for our customers. So are you seeing uh, upgrades being driven more by like security patches as opposed to what new features are coming out? I would say today I see it driven more by security issues than by features. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, you know, we usually upgraded for features and we we found a ways to mitigate to the security risks in other ways, either with config changes or, you know, better firewall rules and things like that. Mm-hmm. But today the security updates are driving a large amount of those upgrades. 
Okay. Uh, and also, I guess we should have maybe covered this earlier, but when we're talking about network device backup and so on, we're talking about networking devices and it sounds like security devices as well. That's right. So firewalls and other security devices, you know, IDSs, IPSs, and then on the network side as well, routers, switches, access points. If it's a, a network infrastructure device, be it security or network or a device doing both as many devices do nowadays, um, then we can manage it. We also can manage uh, a large number of IoT devices or, or OT devices, depending upon their nature. Um, the way I like to think about it is that the type of infrastructure we manage, it's network infrastructure. These are devices that are hardened. They have a purpose-built OS mm -hmm. and they don't allow you to install some sort of agent. So you manage them very differently than you would manage endpoints uh, or even compute systems where you would throw an agent into a cloud environment or even on-prem. Uh, because these, these, these systems are managed differently, they require a dedicated type of platform, which is what we've built here at Backbox. We've really organized the platform to be able to operate as sort of an API gateway into the network so that once you implement Backbox, our network automation platform stands as that gate into those changes. And so whether you're automating change or maybe you're simply making changes by hand uh, in an emergency, you'll want to make those changes from the Backbox platform so that they're logged and recorded and you have an audit trail. And then over time, review the things that are still being done by hand and then move those into automation workflows so that you can get away from doing that manual work. Okay, so you're saying if there's you know one switch, and I know I just need to pop in for five minutes and update a config, rather than you know SSHing into that switch by itself, I should go through Backbox, and then there's a record of what I've done, so Backbox can sort of keep track and serve as a kind of source of truth for everything that's happening on the network. That's exactly right. So not only does it provide network source of truth, but if you find that that task is something that gets repeated. Then you should build an automation workflow so that all you have to do is click a button or, or send an API call to do that change. Okay, um, so Backbox can also sort of become a source of intelligence like, hey, we see uh, the network engineers doing these X number of things over and over and over again. Why not turn this into a workflow? That's right. Why not automate that and turn it into a workflow? One of the things about automation is, you know, you can write a script to do, you know, individual tasks over and over. But there's also when you're talking about networking device, sort of a chain of things that has to happen. It has to hit a switch. It has to hit a firewall, it has to hit an AP and so on. Can you link together changes across multiple devices in the correct order? We can. That's an area that we're enhancing right now, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. But we can do some work where we instrument workflows across devices. You know, one of the common things we see is people that want to reroute traffic and then do an upgrade. You know, let's let's move traffic off of a specific path. Right. Let's verify that things are routing correctly. Let's go do an upgrade. Let's verify connectivity through the upgraded system. And then let's reverse the process in the situation of a high availability pair, for example, or a cluster. That's one of the common things we do. Provisioning is another one where in order to enable, you know, maybe a new web application on a server that's deep within a data center, you may have to make changes not only on that server, but on the app and on all the infrastructure leading to that app. Mm -hmm. um, so we can do those types of things as well. Um, it really just depends on what the customer needs to do and how much elbow grease they want to put into it. The nice thing about Backbox is it's very, very light in terms of the man hours required and the expertise required on the customer end. We try to handle most of that for our customers. We certainly love it when they become experts at Backbox, but our goal here is to provide a platform that's easy to use so they can stay as experts of the network. And this just becomes a tool. You know, I don't, I don't want to be someone who's providing 
a hammer uh, to a set of people that are building networks who need specialized expertise in order to operate the hammer. I want it to feel natural in their hands so that they use it every day without even thinking about it. It's just how they get work done. And that's the key with Batbosh is it's really built to enable them to keep doing operations the way they want, but take a lot of that workload off of them. So you mentioned customers earlier. Do you have examples of how customers are using Backbox to sort of make this more concrete? Yeah, absolutely. TravelX is a big customer of ours. They're a financial services company, Mm -hmm. 70 countries. Um, The challenge they had is that they had a really large, complex, geographically dispersed network and team. And it was very difficult for them to identify misconfigurations around deployments because the team was so distributed and it was very hard to collaborate. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we allowed them to automatically push these changes to all devices globally so it was consistent. And then we provide config audits where we can go in, review those configurations, highlight differences, and then automate the remediation when necessary. So they've been using this product for a couple of years now. They're super happy with it has solved their issue around device configuration conformity, and it's allowing them to push right. those changes out from one central you know, management system. I can see conformity being an issue for a large distributed organization with teams essentially all over the world working in all kinds of time zones, trying to get uniformity across configurations could be a real problem. No, it's a real problem and it, and it gets worse over time. So you need to have some automated system that will go audit those configs at night detect configuration drift away from either your own standards or your golden configs, and then groom those configs back into compliance. And it's a balancing act. It's a balancing act of going fast and making changes when the business needs them, and then going in and and grooming those configurations to bring them back into compliance over time. Another really good example was a very large uh, nonprofit health system here in Texas, uh, located in Houston, as a matter of fact. And they contacted us because they were having reliability and security issues with their unified communication systems. And it was critical for their business because, as you can imagine, if you're in an emergency medical situation, maybe you're in a small hospital, maybe you've had a stroke and there's no stroke specialist at that facility, they need to real time do a high definition video capture mm-hmm. so that you that that doctor can see the patient and prescribe medication that's very time sensitive. So for that environment, the reliability and security of very high quality video was a huge problem for them. They used Batbox and our team. We actually did a little bit of professional services with them to help make it sort of customize those automations to do exactly what they wanted to do. Um, they're upgrading about 500 devices that are all the infrastructure devices around unified communications. They were able to upgrade all the devices through automations. They're able to now do automated upgrades as those new releases are shipped. So they're always staying constantly on the latest version. Uh-huh. And it's ultra reliable and, and allowed them to, to get rid of those uh, those issues around performance they were having. So. Again, another example where they were having operational issues, they implemented automation. Now they're no longer chasing those issues around. They're using automation to maintain the devices and the team was able to focus on other projects. And how about that third use case? Uh, Puget Sound Energy is a really cool customer. Um, They're a large uh, interstate owned energy utility. They service over a million uh, customers across the US. Uh The issue they were having is they have a complex network uh, with many different device types from many different vendors. They had a collection of scripts and and management tools they'd used over the years, but they they have a lot of difficulty maintaining uh, security and configuration of those devices 
because the automation tools were not integrated, they were very disparate. So really, they were just struggling to keep up. They're able now to make those all those changes in seconds. They're no longer doing manual changes on network devices. They're no longer doing having to do manual upgrades. The, uh, the backups are all automated and instrumented via API. So they feel really, really good about this. What's nice is that now they have the confidence that things are happening the way they should happen. They know the backups are done reliably. They know they can always restore with one click if needed. Uh, and that frees up the team to, to focus on things that are more important and quite frankly, more interesting to network engineers. I mean, I don't talk to many network engineers that got into the business because they enjoy doing OS upgrades and backups <laughs> and things like that, right? I mean, it's mundane work. It's work that has to be done. But if you can automate that and just manage it by exception, then it frees up a lot of your time to get involved in more interesting things. You know, in often cases, uh, that means either digital transformation or some sort of a, a cloud journey. It's that opportunity to extract more value out of the network as opposed to just my job here is to keep this thing up and running. You can actually extract more business value out of it by getting those low level but essential things like backup and, and uh, you know, configuration consistency out of the way or taken care of. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> okay, so one last question before we wrap. Uh, how do folks sort of get into this? Is there an easy way to start bringing automation into the organization with Backbox? Great question. They can go to backbox.com slash packet pushers to download a free trial. Um, the product can be installed on-prem or in any public cloud environment, uh, Google, Azure, or AWS. You can check it out today, have it up and running in less than an hour and be uh, backing up and automating your devices by the time lunch is over. All right. That's backbox.com slash packet pushers. We'll have that and other links in the show notes if you want more details. Uh, Josh, thank you for being here. We appreciate the conversation and, and thanks to Backbox for being a sponsor. And thanks to you for being a listener. If you like this episode, there are many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.